Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome to Bibliophiles, everyone. Glad to have you along. Adam Andrews with you once again, leader of the Center for Lit crew, along with the crew, my wife, Missy. Hi. My son, Ian. Well, hey. And my daughter-in-law, Emily. Hello. Hi, guys. Megan, the fifth and final member of the Center for Lit crew, is not with us today because she is vacationing in France. And, and we all hate her. And none of us, <laughs> none of us feel the least bit sorry for her. Mm. No, we do not. But we are glad to carry on in her absence with a brand new topic on the on the subject of the great books and their relationship to all of life. And the topic today is leadership. What we want to know in our discussion today is how do the great books address the idea of leadership? I don't know if this particular age of the world is any more appropriate or any more uh, um, a hotbed of discussions about leadership, but the subject certainly comes up a lot you know, for everyone, from sports fans to followers of politics. I was watching a, a sports show the other day, and it had to do with NFL football. And because it had to do with NFL football, it had to do with the New England Patriots. And because it had to do with the New England Patriots, it had to do with the great alpha male leader of all of sports history, Tom Brady. I don't know how many of you Bibliophiles listeners are also fans of NFL football or the New England Patriots or Tom Brady, but there's only one tune that the sports world sings when it comes to Tom Brady, and it is what, a, what an outstanding leader he is, what leadership qualities he possesses. And it always gets me thinking when they go on and on, because anytime, anytime you watch a TV show, a sports show in particular, and everybody who's behind a mic is singing the same tune with no variation whatsoever... It always makes me a little suspicious. And it's probably just an irascible strain of my nature. But I always look at, the, at them fawning over Tom Brady, and he's a very successful NFL quarterback. There's no question about that. But it makes me wonder, is, is it true that he possesses leadership ability of an amazingly high order? And if so, what does it consist in? And, you know, that's a thought I have as a sports fan, and it's, uh, it, it, maybe, maybe it gains a little significance if we take that question into the context of the great books, not uh, to ask what the greatest broadcasters of the world have ever said about the subject, but what the greatest <laughs> authors of the world have said about the subject. So I want to I broaden this conversation uh, beyond NFL football and the New England Patriots. I was going to say... To be clear, is the question, what did the great books have to say about, about Tom, Tom Brady? Brady. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that uh, clarification, Emily. No, that's not the question. The question is, what do the great books have to say about leadership? Is it a topic that the, the authors of the Western tradition are as preoccupied uh, by as ESPN seems to be? And if so, what do they say? So maybe the first question first, is this a topic of, that's worthy of paying attention to in terms of the great conversation? Do you all see it too? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, think the, I think the great books are as preoccupied with leadership as they are with all of the other universal questions of the human condition. Leadership's a component of the question that all authors and all readers ask, right? Who am I mm. and what good am I? Mm. 
um, and just about everybody, I mean, all of you listeners is in addition to us, we're going to find ourselves in positions in our lives where we are called upon to assume a position of leadership, or we're called upon to choose a leader, one mm-hmm. of the two mm-hmm. to decide who we're going to follow. Mm-hmm. And the tools we have at our disposal to do that are the same tools, no matter what culture we're from or what time period we're acting in. Mm-hmm. So I think the great books have a ton to tell us about leadership, just because all their authors were faced with the same questions huh. we're faced with. Huh. I, it seems to me like leadership is, when you mention it that way, it's an aspect of human relationship. The the relationship of of loving and being loved is similar to the relationship of leading and following. It's a re, it's a way that human beings relate to one another and and in the course of this Western tradition of ours, every facet of every human relationship has been the subject of contemplation. So why should this one, leading and following, be any different, right? Emily, what do you think about that? You're putting me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, well, I was thinking that it's um, the reason that the, the leadership is so prevalent in the great books has something to do with the fact that in its early stages in the in the Greek sections, there's a lot of concern with politics, like with statesmanship and, and the statesmen and, and how do we educate the statesmen. And, yes. And that kind of set the foundation for the rest of Western civilization. And that was a pretty prominent uh, topic of conversation then. So, uh, uh, yeah, okay, okay. The, the early... Western preoccupation with politics and the state and and communal living or living in society obviously makes leadership an important topic. I mean, I, when you, you bring up the ancients, I think of the epics as well, which seem to be uh, preoccupied maybe is the right word even with leadership because of the epic status of their heroes, Odysseus and Achilles and Aeneas, the founders of civilizations and the kings of ancient cultures. Readers look at listeners to, to the epics, look up to them as model human beings in one way or another. And so it's probably logical to look at them and say, what makes them so great and in what ways should they be emulated? Yes. Yeah, I can see that going on in like um, Beowulf, mm-hmm. that question of what's a good leader. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that that's one of the major questions in that particular piece. And it's interesting because Beowulf covers um, the lifespan of the hero, Beowulf, who starts out as a warrior and ends up as a king. And the question of leadership is kind of writ large over the pages of that particular epic because the answer is different whether he's a warrior or a king. That is to say, when he's a warrior, leadership looks like one thing. Yeah. And when he becomes a king, it should look a little different. <laughs> It doesn't actually in Beowulf's case, but it ought to. And thus the tragedy of the hero. Yeah. When you say tragedy, that thinking of Beowulf, there's such a sadness in that epic Mm -hmm. that stems from the, the failure of leadership, Leadership, the failure of Beowulf to make Uh the transition from, from warrior leader to king leader. Yes. And it results in the, there's that prophecy that at the end, that elegaic um, foretelling of doom by that the, the Giedish woman. Or, oh, it was Wigliff, yeah. the, the spear bearer. Right. It seems that the same reason that uh, that we need leaders in the first place, the fact that man is prone to failure and prone to anarchy and that he has a fallen nature, this is the reason why we need governments and leadership in the first place. We can't be trusted to just live peaceably alone is the same reason that leaders struggle and why we have to talk about it so much after that, Hmm. that leaders are also human and prone to failure. Uh, Yeah. So it's not as though you can just by encompassing with your mind, the the traits and qualities of a good leader, go ahead and be one any more than you can go ahead and be a good 
uh, person. Fill right? in the blank. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We aspire to leadership and to good leadership, but we achieve that um, to varying degrees. You know, I don't think anybody <laughs> ever gets all the way there. Do you think it's fair then to say that the great books are as are equally, well, put it this way, are as interested in portraying the failure of leadership as they are in uh, holding up a model? Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Miss. I think probably the best ones portray failure in leadership to one extent or another because because all books are really interested in talking primarily about the nature of man, what is a human being, the human experience. And um, they want to do it in such a way that it resonates with the readers. And when readers are telling the truth... Um, none of them are really fabulous leaders. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all aspire to leadership. And like I said, to some degree, sometimes we become representative in some way or another. But we don't ever, I mean, if we're honest, the very best leaders, the most honest leaders will say, I'm not a very good leader. Yeah. They see right. their want. They see their, their failure. Their weakness, their feet of clay. Right. Everybody has feet of clay. So when we read a work in which a leader fails, our hearts, um, our, our hearts chime in. Ah, there's empathy, you know. There's, our hearts chime in. I yes. love it. Well, that's what I mean. And to have a good government or good leadership in the first place, you have to have, there has to be anticipation of failure. So it's not just that it resonates with us, but like this is what leads to good government or leadership anyway, is recognition and preparation for failure. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. And humility then is the result of living in light of that kind of failure, right? So maybe maybe that, that makes me think that one of the um, primary qualities of a good leader is um, self-awareness, humility, personal humility. Mm. Like maybe yeah. a good leader is somebody who doesn't actually think he's any good at leading. <laughs> I like mm-hmm. that. I, I like that. That makes me think of um, Watership Down... Richard Adams is, I mean, look, okay, so we're going to talk about how all literature is meditating on leadership in some way, shape, or form, like I was saying earlier, and that's definitely true, but among all of the great books, right, Watership Down sort of stands athwart the masses in its meditations (laughs) on leadership. In fact, Richard Adams, um, one of the things I like to say about him is that he does the traditional first novel where what he wants to do is provide a meaningful, profound statement about every single tiny aspect of human life, and usually... (laughs) Authors fail miserably in this regard, right? Your first novel is never your best one. Well, Richard Adams apparently is some kind of an ubermensch because he <laughs> does manage to say something profound about just about every aspect of human life. But um, he is definitely concerned with what a good leader is, and we're introduced to several different communities with different kinds of leaders and different kinds of governments. And he shows us the flaws with each one of them. There's a, there's a monarchy, there's a dictatorship, and so on and so forth. And the leader, the kind of leadership that he upholds is exactly what um, you're talking about, Mom. This this Hazel, his main character, over the course of the story, sees himself primarily as a facilitator. Yes, he looks at all of his all of his followers and sees them following him for reasons he knows not. Uh-huh. <laughs> which I think is just a great way for, for a leader to think. I don't know why y'all are following me, but I can sure tell you what it is that you are good at. I can, right. I can tell you what your use to our community is, right. and I can put you in a position to lead yourself mm-hmm. in this area of, uh, in which you're gifted, which I, I think that's a great vision of leadership. It, Missy, is this what you were suggesting a second ago about the unselfconscious or the, the, not, the lack of, of awareness of yourself as a great leader? Yeah, I think so. In fact, 
towards the end of that story, there is a moment where Hazel um, becomes a little, well, he gets self-conscious about this whole leadership issue because there are some others mm. in the group that seem to have the qualities of leadership that he lacks. Uh, one in particular, Bigwig, is this really large rabbit and you know, he looks like he could be a bouncer in the rabbit community. He's one of those <laughs> in guys. In a rabbit bar. <laughs> you know, he's really, really strong and capable and fierce. And, you know, in, in the natural environment, it's it's a, na- a natural community. Yeah. You know, it seems like that is really uh, a requisite uh-huh. for being successful. And so he looks at that and he gets a little jealous and he thinks, I can do strong things too. And yeah. in a moment of great weakness, he... He plans this um, kind of a raid on a local farm, and he's going to bring back all these does. And it's this his moment of brilliance, you know. And it's his lowest point. He he nearly sabotages the future Fails of the completely. little the little Warren that he's established, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that that actually adds so much weight to all of the leadership he's shown up until that point, because the humility, his his um, humanity. I know we're talking about rabbits, but his, this rabbit is human, right? right. <laughs> his humanity actually kind of rises to the surface in that moment. And we see that he's led out of his weakness all along. Um, yeah, I, th- I think so. Interesting. Interesting. So there's a couple of examples already of great books that we're fond of. Um, how shall I put it? Painting this this negative picture of leadership and kind of ironically suggesting that through that negative experience, um, that's where real leadership comes from or where we can see it best. Yes? Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Does this comport with the the hero slash leaders of the, of the big three ancient epics that we kind of always start with when we're considering the Western tradition with Odysseus, with Achilles, with Aeneas? Oh, that's a fun question. <laughs> they were certainly full of failure. Well, except for except for um, Aeneas, I think. Really, you think? I mean, it's not the not as though he's perfect, but I think of all of the three that that Dad just listed, um, he's the most respectable from my perspective. From it, just from my own readings of the epics, I would rather I would rather follow a guy like Aeneas around than I would Odysseus or Achilles. Is it because greatness was thrust upon him? So maybe, yeah, I think part of it is that. Um, I also think that the. Um, the trait that allows him to do what he's supposed to do at the end of the day looks a lot like faith instead of um, brilliance or or uh, strength or mm. anything like that or Be- pride because I of mean, his think, because I of mean, his faith in destiny. You mean? Yeah, I mean, even Odysseus, right? He's the kind of leader that he is is one who is um, eager for glory. Uh, and he's brilliant and he's crafty and he's dedicated. And so people want to follow him because he's intrepid. Right. Um, yeah. but even in the end of the story, when, when he, uh, becomes a hero, when he saves his, saves his family and all of those sorts of things, you can see him doing it for the sake of his own honor. It's pride in some ways that motivates him, even if it's a sort of kingly pride that we look at as regal instead of a, of a fault, it's still, pride that causes him to defend his family name. And I don't see that in Aeneas. What I see is instead um, faith and a a meekness of spirit. Yeah, I would say that in Odysseus and Achilles, I see leaders who experience failure and in themselves are maybe transformed by their own experience into better leaders. Uh Whereas with Aeneas, it's more like there is a man of failure who doesn't change on himself instead like the leadership kind of is 
like you said, thrust upon him. He's yeah. kind of guided outside of himself. Well, um, and maybe in, that's in spite of himself to good leadership. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that actually the structure of the story backs that up because in what in what Virgil's writing, where the whole thing starts with the fall of Troy, right? I mean, there's Aeneas's whole background is failure to protect his homeland, failure to succeed against against these foreign interlopers. So there, I think structurally the, the story of Aeneas has a lot to say about leadership that maybe the Iliad and the Odyssey don't. You know, it's interesting though, I, my reading, and I think Missy, you, you taught me this in the last few years. So this may be down to you and you can correct me if I, if I say it wrong, even, but the, <laughs> the, um, the, um, the Roman mandate that Aeneas has, has been uh, told to uphold. Remember Roman to rule these people. Yes. Well. Battle rule these people the well, battle down the proud, be merciful <laughs> to the oppressed and the conquered and that sort of thing. Right. Um, and it's, it's sort of this rallying cry for Roman citizens of Virgil's time during the reign of Caesar mm-hmm. Augustus to, to remember what it is to be a true Roman. There is the same sort of cynicism about the human ability to execute those things that shows up in the last mm-hmm. scene yeah. of the yeah. Aeneid mm-hmm. when he is overcome with um, fury with fury and executes bloodthirsty vengeance on a powerless uh, conquered enemy right and runs Turnus through as the final act and sends his soul whimpering into the depths oh oh, oh. what was that oh spoiler, that? spoiler spoiler alert, alert. sorry <laughs> you, you ruined it. it yeah it was a great epic and you ruined it <laughs> Someone might have been reading for thousands of pages for that. And you ruined it. But that was what I was trying to say, though, I think, because he is like, I was thinking of that moment of fury at the end that he isn't maybe the best kind of person. Whereas, like, with Achilles, we have the opposite. He does that in the beginning, he drags um, Hector's body around the walls of Troy and he comes to a moment of repentance and redemption in a way that. Aeneas doesn't. And so that's why I say Aeneas is a good leader in spite of himself. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. That's definitely worth thinking about. For or that sure. it's more providential. You know, Rome is created, the the gods, the deities, or whatever use Aeneas as a leader that he didn't intentionally choose to lead, or that it wasn't that he ever achieved the virtues of a good leader. It's that he was in the right place at the right time and, and the providential forces used him to lead mm. anyway. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, th- this idea of self-knowledge is what I want to get back to. And I want to make a jump from the ancient world to the Elizabethan world and talk about um, Shakespeare, the other, uh, not the other great writer of the tradition, but one of the great writers of the Western tradition that that seems to be um, if not preoccupied with the question of leadership, at least attentive to it on occasion. And, um, and Missy, I want to start with you because you are a, a great lover of the tragedy of King Lear, which doesn't make you unique, of course. There are many of us who love Lear, but you have um, done a lot of thinking on Lear and, and talked with me um, on many occasions about the, the issue of leadership and how it shows up in that play. Would you consider this to be a great stopping point along our journey if, if this topic is of interest to us? Oh, yeah, absolutely. King Lear is a great, a great one to look to if what you're interested in is studying the necessity of self-knowledge and humility in a leader because Lear lacks both. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, of course, it's a tragedy. At the end, everybody's dead. <laughs> His, all of his children and Lear himself dies and he's basically lost his, um, lost everything that was dear to him. And it, it came about all because of his arrogance and his lack of, 
um, self-slight mm-hmm. in the story, suggesting that that particular quality, knowing oneself, is really central to leadership. Even in a in an object lesson where the the character who needs it most only gets it when it's too late. Oh, especially in that way. And I think Shakespeare um, was a master at this. You know, he he would study he would study the positive through the negatives. Mm-hmm. So in every one of his tragedies, he takes a great man by anyone's estimation. And there, he locates within that man some sort of a fatal flaw, mm-hmm. um, hubris of some sort, or inaction in Hamlet, for example. Anyway, at some point, he locates a, a fatal flaw, and everything in the drama turns on that fatal flaw in that character, thus magnifying the humanity, right, of the, of the personality. He's definitely a go-to if you're wanting to study leadership, because over and over again, you get his king's who have personal weaknesses and as a result fail in leadership mightily. You get Othello who does so. You get Hamlet who does so. Hamlet in particular, I was thinking about a while ago, and he's the one who's supposed to avenge his father's death on his uncle, the usurper. And he fails to do so because although it is his job, his his uncle has killed his father, assassinated his father and hidden it right from the world and then married his his brother's wife, so right. Hamlet's mother, and Hamlet knows this. He he suspects this, and he's brooding on it throughout the whole play. He's just brooding, and it would be appropriate for him, since he really is the heir apparent, the rightful heir to the throne, um, to execute justice. That's what a good leader does. He executes justice on inequity and on tyrants. But mm-hmm. Hamlet can't seem to do that, and when he finally does determine to screw his courage to the sticking place, to use another. Uh, Shakespearean. <laughs> not a Hamletian, <laughs> no, but at least Hamletian, a Shakespearean. But another Shakespearean idea. <laughs> when he decides to finally do it, he finds his uncle at prayer. And then he stays his sword and says, no, I'm not going to kill him while he's praying because then I'll send his soul to heaven and he deserves to go to hell. So at that point, <laughs> his fatal flaw comes to the surface as well because what he really wants is not to execute judgment and justice in his rightful role as king, but he wants to execute judgment and justice as God. As God. He wants to damn the soul. Yes, he, oh, or man. leaps his own authority, and he, he makes of himself a god. There's his fatal pride in that moment. Here's, Go ahead, well, You know what I love about the, these ideas is that, so, I mean, like I said a second ago, um, this will just be another version of my Richard Adams comment. Um, <laughs> we can find aspects of comment commentary on leadership because it's a part of the human condition in all sorts of great books. But looking to Shakespeare, I think is particularly effective because he himself is writing to and for the monarchy. He's writing for for the king. And so, right. And then often, I mean, we we were talking about Hamlet, fictional, right? Lear, fictional. Um, Othello is fictional, but then there are history plays, right? Which is one of Emily's main interests is, is the history plays. And he's actually writing about the history of the Tudor monarchy mm-hmm. and he's in to the their descendants he is presenting, right? Exactly. In the way he's presenting those stories, that history, the spin that he's giving to these characters, he is commenting not just on the way that their reign went back in the day, but he's also commenting on trends he sees morally and politically in the current monarchy, which is uh, just an awfully brave thing to do. And I think it's uh, super rife with commentary and leadership, don't you think? I was just thinking, Emily, you talk a lot about, um, for example, um, King Henry and, and Hal, right? Prince Hal and Falstaff and um, about the their relationship with one another, 
And actually, um, in a previous discussion on this topic that we had just informally, I think Emily said at one point, there's no such thing as a good leader in Shakespeare. Didn't you, Emily, say that once? Yeah, I do think that's pretty true. Um, I, I mean, yeah, Prince Hall is my favorite of all of Shakespeare's leaders. And I kind of see him as the kid who uh, goes through the leadership training seminar um, or like gets a, a degree in leadership management or something at school and has all these ideas of what he will be as a leader and then is hired on as a manager um, at a company without any prior experience and and uh, and then assumes that he knows everything and doesn't have to listen to anyone else who does have experience and just looks at himself as leader as identity um, when in reality he is a person just like everyone else and that's that's kind of his flaw as leader is that you can't enter leadership for the sake of leadership that it has a lot more to do with relationship mm -hmm. and um, failure, like we were saying earlier. Mm. I, I've been reading Richard II. Uh, there's a part where he's found out that uh, Henry Bolingbroke has come to England to take his throne, and he gets super discouraged by it. And um, there's a part where he says, you were mistaken. I'm just a man like you are. Uh, I need bread, and I need friends, and I grieve like you do. And that's really where good leadership comes from, I think, is that realization that you're just a person bef before you're a leader. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I, it's it's almost as if Shakespeare wants to emphasize the fact that leadership is a position, not a person. You know, it's um, it's not a quality. It's a it's a job description. It's a job or a description. Role. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And only good and only um, whole people can pull it off. <laughs> yeah, people yeah. who know themselves to right. be fallen, who know themselves to be weak. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, it's not very literary to go here, but I think about Cincinnatus. He's always held up as, as the great leader because he wasn't ambitious. He mm -hmm. was not interested in doing anything other than recognizing, okay, I'm being called in uh, to assume this position, this role, but this, this role that I feel is not who I am. And at the first possible moment that it's appropriate for me to do so, I'm going to go back to my, my, my real plow. life, yeah. my plow to doing what I do and being who I am, which is certainly not um, leadership, you know? Well, I think that's interesting in light of what Emily was suggesting a minute ago about, about Shakespeare and in particular about Henry V or Hal in the, in the previous plays that he is, um, um, under prepared personally mm -hmm. to fulfill the obligations of the position. And I don't know if that's par paraphrasing you badly, Emily, but there's this scene that I've always read in Henry V as a, as a measure of his great leadership when he has the thief hanged that he knows, or even in Henry the fourth, when he, um, when he, uh, when he denies, denies Falstaff. Falstaff yeah. I, mean? yeah. I, I've always been taught to read that maybe just because of immaturity and inexperience taught to read that as a, as a, as a, a great man, um, taking up the mantle of leadership and denying his own personal feelings for the good of the state, which is what a great leader does. But if your reading of, of Henry is correct, Emily, that would be, um, not, a, not at all what's going on there, right? Yeah, that happens in Richard II, too. There's a character who's kind of set up as this paragon of virtue who's uncle to the king, and all along he's trying to tiptoe along and, and be perfectly loyal and perfectly obedient to the two king figures that are set up, and he's trying to weigh 
and the balance, uh, which one to follow. And at the very end, when it's all said and done, he finds out that his son has betrayed the new king. And he he takes this evidence to the king and condemns his own son and says, you need to put my son to death because he's a traitor. And the the boy's mother, his wife, comes to the court and says, this man has no heart. This is my son. Please pardon him. And her words are, if I were your teacher, um, I actually have the quote here just as happenstance, but she says, and if I were thy nurse, thy tongue to teach pardon should be the first word of thy speech. Mm. So her instruction to the king is the first thing that a king should learn. The first word on his lips should be pardon. Mm. And I think that carries through in all of Shakespeare's plays. And I think it's really good advice for leadership. Wow. It makes so much more sense that Shakespeare would be saying, don't hang your friend. That's yeah. a terrible thing to do, regardless of your position. Yeah, you know, that comes through not only in his tragedies and, his his, and in his histories, but also in his comedies. Oh, really? It comes through in Measure for Measure. Mm. You guys know that story? Mm. Uh, a, a, I actually don't, oddly enough. A leader um, decides to go away and to put his, um, his authority, vest, his deputy, basically, with his authority. Mm-hmm. And this deputy is well known for being a really upright guy, kind of a stickler for details where the law is concerned. And he thinks that in going and leaving um, his town in this guy's hands, that he'll kind of straighten everybody up, clean up the town in his absence. Because he he's a stickler for detail, right. this guy is. And, and the king himself, or, the, or the, the prince, or whatever he's called in the particular play, um, he himself, he knows he's not that good at that. Right. That he's kind of lax, and he tends to pardon, and things have kind of gone to pot under his rulership. Uh, nobody really regards the law as they ought to. So he leaves, but he doesn't really leave. He assumes a disguise, of course, as, as the it's a Shakespeare Shakespearean comedy. comedy, right? He dresses up like a girl, too. And he stays to watch. And the effects of leadership when thrust upon his deputy are very corruptive. The guy begins to um, to be a tyrant, and he makes a lot of laws that he himself can't keep and gets in a lot of trouble as a result. And, um, you know, becomes a comedy in the end. But when the Duke comes back and decides he's going to make things right, um, he puts the screws to the to the deputy he's left in charge. But in a very merciful sort of way, um, he gives him what he deserves, but he doesn't give him all of what he deserves. Mm. Um, he ends up, he, it's, you know, it's Shakespearean, it's very body. He ends up having um, a, a law on the books that has to do with chastity, and then he's unchaste. So he makes him marry the person with whom he's been unchaste. Mm. And that is his um, his penalty. But it it pr- produces only hilarity on the stage. And in the final analysis, his conclusion is that that justice and mercy go hand in hand mm. because human beings are not pure things. Mm-hmm. They're not um, They're not upright. And if you know yourself that you yourself are not upright, then humility ought to be the effects of that kind of self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. If you know yourself that you need mercy, then mercy ought to be the thing that flows out of your fingers as mm-hmm. the king. Mm-hmm. That seems to be what Shakespeare said. That seems to, to be a constant theme. In Shakespeare, I think so. Yeah. What about other? What about other instances of the Western tradition? What about what about juvenile fiction? Does the theme come up in books written for younger readers? Are more recent authors as preoccupied with it as the Elizabethan or the ancient ones? Oh, that's a good question. I would assume that they are, just based on the fact that they're participating in the same tradition. But 
I actually can't think of one that jumps immediately to mind that that comments real explicitly on leadership. Oh, man. I was thinking of Peter Pan. Oh, yeah. About the kid who leads in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah. Peter Pan, the the charismatic leader who um, uh, maybe commits the the sin of Henry V or the sin of Achilles or... Okay, now you're going to have to explain yourself. Well, I mean, it's he's uh, Peter Pan is without doubt a charismatic leader with a following, but also completely self-absorbed. Okay. Also concerned almost exclusively with getting his own itch scratched. That's fair. His own uh, past history taken care of, his own desire to uh, remain comfortable in his... What in Achilles' case, you would fill in the blank with bitterness. Yeah. In Peter Pan's case, you would fill in the blank with immaturity or childishness, right? And um, Barry suggests gently, let me kind of gently like Shakespeare, that there's, there's no future in that. That actually um, humility and being uh, focused on the needs of those around you is the long-term solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of Peter Pan that way. How would you have thought of Peter Pan? I mean, I, th- I wasn't saying I disagree. I just had never thought about it in this context before. I think it's really cool. I mean, that it, uh, in one sense, right, the kind of leadership that we see him exercising as he's gathering the Lost Boys to himself and the, the sort of leader that we meet at the beginning of the story is extremely uh, charismatic, right? Yeah. People want to follow him. Right. But I think you're you're right to notice that there's no staying power in the kind of leadership that he's doing. It's um, oh, what's the word? It's well, it's all charisma. Yeah, and that isn't enough in final analysis. Yeah, and I don't know that that uh, that it's a story about self knowledge quite as much as as King Lear or or the Iliad, but it certainly has a shows a leader with the same sort of feet of clay. And it sounds like the gist of this conversation is that the existence of the feet of clay uh, is the first step in a contemplation of leadership. That it must be, since it's a human quality, in order to understand it correctly, we've got to begin by understanding human beings as fallen and and finite and insufficient in some way. I was thinking about um, Carry On Mr. Bowditch, another work of juvenile fiction uh, that contemplates leadership, I think. For sure, yeah. Um, about Nathaniel Bowditch, who was actually, it's its a work of historical fiction, so Nathaniel Bowditch was a, a real guy, um, historically, who created a, a book on navigation and sailing that revolutionized the industry. I think it's even still, still used referenced today. today yeah. uh, it, well, yeah, recently it has been. I think computers yeah. have probably replaced it now, but... But Gene Lee Latham actually wrote uh, um, the, his biography for children, and that's the one to which I'm referring. And in that particular dramatization of his life, she presents him as someone who's just really, really precocious, incredibly smart at a young age, who was disadvantaged in the sense that his father didn't have any money, so he apprenticed him to a chandler, and his dream of becoming a Harvard man, going to college, um, never was never actualized. So instead, he had to teach himself. And... In the process of um, his apprenticeship, he met the right people and, and gained access to a library and taught himself multiple languages and continued to learn mathematics, which he was just like a, just a whiz at mathematics. And when he finally began um, going out to sea, um, he learned how to take lunars and then learned an, a shortcut to taking lunars that's one of the keys to navigation in his particular time period. 
and began to teach just, quote unquote, the man at the mast, the average unschooled, you know, hand doofus, you know, on oh, the she said doofus. <laughs> she, he began to teach them <laughs> how to take these complicated lunars and um, it was, it was life-saving. But the way he was able to do this came about at, as a result of a relationship with his sister. Um, he, he would get really short with her when they were younger. Impatient. Impatient with her because she couldn't keep up with his trains of thought when he was trying to teach her, especially when it was a mathematical concept. Um, she, she just couldn't keep up with him. She was a little, not, not dull, but just not as quick as he was. And one day she said to him, look, you know, it's like you're walking, you're, you're walking around in a dark room and I'm furniture and you, you trip over me in your, in your haste. And it stopped him. It kind of brought him up short and he realized, okay, this isn't about um, math. This is about relationships. And any math that I do, I ought to do it for the sake of relationships. And any teaching I'm trying to do, I'll have to consider the relationship or we're not going to get anywhere. And that relationship with his, with his sister informed his ability to teach people that had never done any kind of real math before how to do these complicated mathematics and save human lives. Um, this kind of Teachability mm -hmm. in his regard, I think, also underscores the necessity of humility in a leader, and was um, maybe responsible for his his work mm. as a leader in that particular field. It's the thing that made him great, and it came out of his own weakness, right? You know, his acknowledgement. Well, and I think that transitions to a good, like, practical point because he was a teacher, and teaching is a form of leadership, and it's kind of revolutionary to think of it coming from a place of weakness. Cause usually we think of teachers coming from knowledge and, and right. strength imparting and some kind expertise. of wisdom that they have. Yeah. Yeah. That's rarely the case. I mean, the best teachers understand how little they really do know. Yeah. Which is just really encouraging. Mostly. I mean, <laughs> for someone I, who sets himself right? up as a teacher, it is. <laughs> I mean, that's what, I'm really glad that that is one of the primary qualities of a teacher, right? Because I don't hardly know nothing. Well, and it may be one of the primary qualities of the educated person. I mean, educated people, if they know anything at all, have finally figured out that of the making of books, there is no end and much uh. study is tiresome to the soul, you know, that they... <laughs> then the sum total of what they know at any given moment rounds down to zero. <laughs> it rounds down right. to zero. Yeah. When you but consider as, how much as there with is all these other, with, with all these other things though, I feel like there's two sides to, to the coin, right? You can say of that phrase of the making of books, there is no end and, and all that good stuff. You could say, Oh yeah, that's really true. And we're never going to know anything. And the, the first step to being educated is that we, we uncovered to ourselves how much we'll never know. But then the other way to think about it is what a rich and spectacular life of the mind we can engage in if there is no end to the things that we can learn and read and no end to the number of protagonists there are to identify with. I mean, if we can learn to have this kind of conversation, what an um, incredible life we'll lead. In, in particular, I like that thought because it, as it pertains to leadership in particular, if what we're suggesting today is that leadership is a is a, is a feature of human relationship. It's a subcategory of relationship, which depends on humility and self-knowledge and sight of the other in order to be effective. Then participating in the Western tradition, in the great books, can be an aid to that very thing. 
Because as we see yeah. in Odysseus, as we see in Achilles and Aeneas, as we see in Hamlet, as we see in the rabbits of Watership Down and Nathaniel Bowditch and Peter Pan, those are all facets and aspects and artistic representations of a human nature that we all share. And as we're always saying around here, the empathy that we can gain for the plight of our neighbor just by reading depictions of his situation in literature is a valuable thing. That might be a tool in our toolbox for leadership in our own spheres down the road. It's interesting. As I came along, a lot of times as we read books about great leaders, the impulse, my impulse, maybe the common impulse was to mine those works for qualities of a great leader, you know, all, all of his preparedness or his, I don't know, his his um, loyalty or his duty. Or, Integrity. Yeah, all of those things. Honor. Um, and and then to make a list and say, if I do this, 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 then I can be a great leader too. And um, it seems like the conversation that we've had today, has a, it use, utilizes those pictures in literature very differently. Yeah, differently, yeah. Um, instead of, look, here are the qualities of a great leader, so you can be one too, um, keep a list. Instead, it seems like what we're acknowledging is that the the great authors have suggested, here's a portrait of a great leader and his shortfall, mm-hmm. right? So that we can see ourselves in those great leaders and see our own shortfall mm-hmm. as well. Um, I, I don't know. Well, the next thought that I that jumped to my mind when you were saying this, who knows um, what day leadership is going to be thrust upon us right. by the fates or God or history or circumstance. And the great books remind us that the important part is being human, being whole, having a clear sight of ourselves, because um, those who succeed in positions of leadership, it seems to me, are the ones who understand their weakness. Yeah, know it. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Interesting. Well, another reason to continue reading, my friends. Thank you for another great discussion, Center for Lit Crew. I appreciate it as always. And thank you all to those of you who tuned in to listen for doing so. We appreciate it very much. If you get a chance to rate Bibliophiles on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, we would always appreciate that, as we would appreciate a trip through the website at www.centerforlit.com, where you can find a million and one resources for readers of all stripes. We hope that we see you again on a future episode of Bibliophiles. And until that day, my friends, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>